0: Hey, good morning. It's good to see you. Hey, um, do we have anyone in the room that knows how to do the audio? Can you turn this on? Thanks, man. (laughs) Because I'll run out of voice in about 10 minutes. These aren't um, headphones, by the way. They're earplugs. Okay, so if you need these, they'll be up here. (laughs) My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the lead teaching pastor. And happy Resurrection Day, or Easter, if you will. Yeah. Um, What we're celebrating didn't happen on this exact day, but this is a day that our culture and the church celebrates what God did to death. God shut the mouth of death when by his spirit, by God's spirit, he breathed into Jesus, bringing him up to new life for all the world to see. And this is the day that we celebrate it, super excited about it. Um, I love the way that John Mark McMillan describes this day in his song Death in His Grave. He says, "For Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, lay down in grief but woke with the keys of hell on that day the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ lay death in his grave." Today is not the day that we know of that it happened, but like I said, this is the day that the culture celebrates it, right? And I'm all for that. I'm celebrating it too. I have a suit on. (laughs) Some of you didn't think I owned a suit, right? There you go. (laughs) I've been, I don't have a tie. I do so many shoulder shrugs. I kept popping them and ripping them with my big muscular neck. I just gave the whole thing up. Not really. Um, Yeah, you know, I've been preaching the gospel on Sunday mornings for over 15 years now. Um, This is the first time I've ever worn a suit to preach the gospel on a Sunday morning. I'm not against suits. I've just have never done it. So I thought I'd just dust it off today a little bit. This suit, in particular, is kind of new. It's not my first, but I've worn it maybe three or four times. Right? Always at funerals. I've only worn them at funerals or memorials where the dead were celebrated. It's very, very difficult to outdress Somebody who's being honored as as, as the deceased at a funeral. Especially if it's an open casket situation and you walk in, you're just not going to outdress that person. We have an industry and and, and actually a culture in the Western world to dress up those who we're honoring. And if you can see them through an open casket type of a situation, it's, it's it's a way our culture looks and tries to remember them one last time. Not as one who is dead, but one who is just merely sleeping. So in the West, we have a culture and even an industry that makes the dead look alive. It's fascinating to me. I did a little bit of research. There are over 60 universities in our great land here where you can get a master's and sometimes a degree in mortuary services. That's, I mean, it's brilliant. I've never met it. I mean, raise your hand if you've ever met anyone that went to school to get a degree from that. Right? Lie. You don't know anyone that's done that. Making the dead look alive. It's not just a degree plan. It's not just an industry. It's a reality for a lot of people. I mean, maybe it's you, but I know in the city, I know in the world, possibly in this room, we have a lot of people that it's the reality. They feel very, very dead, but they're trying really hard to look really, really alive. I, I, I suffered with this for a long time. And for those of you who are dead, working really hard to look alive, I know how it feels. Easter happens to be our pageant. It's the time where we all come out, dressed a certain way, sure to go to church. I think many of us have noticed and many of us have seen, because we've gone or because we've heard around the grapevine, that this happens to be one of those, the most highest attended Sunday services in the land, and it is. Now, not traditionally for our church. Our church, this is either average or lower than average because we're a church plant. So we lose most of our college students who are going out of town or with family or extended family. So we kind of start to dwindle around Easter, and then we pop afterward. But if you were to take all 800-plus pulpits in the city, the Knox metro area, and add up all of their attendance, this is a blip on the radar. It goes straight up, and it will start to taper off. Probably by June, it will be back to normal. That's typical numbers, right? And for sure, you've gotten mailers, right? Mailers from churches because pastors are smart. And we know that this is one big uh, influx of people that we don't have to spend a lot of money to get, right? So we try to leverage the fact that it's Easter, capture as many people as we can, and ride the wave as long as we possibly can, hoping that those who came to Easter for that first time since Christmas, and and some of you, I hope Christmas as well. (laughs) I haven't seen you since then. I hope that we ride the wave all the way through. I think it's a burden for most, though. I think for most people, most people, Easter is a burden. It's something that becomes very difficult because we just do it to do it. It's not a celebration, it's an act of tolerance. We go because our culture tells us to go. We have a lot of attendance all over the city because this is what you're supposed to do, especially in the Deep South. You go to church because you're supposed to go to church because that's what everyone's done because the people before them have done the same thing. So we have churches full of people like that and then we have people that are at home right now that won't go to church because they don't believe they're not just not tolerating resurrection day and what it celebrates. They're refusing it. No king, no empty grave, no bloody cross, no church, no afterlife, no immortality, no nothing. It's just a day that The Christians get together, and I might or might not get an extra day off. This actually is not new. I'm going to put a passage up on the screen. This is not the main passage that's going to lift the weight of the service today. That would be Romans 6. So if you have your Bible, you can flip to Romans 6 and just put your finger there. That's going to be the main text that shows us Christ more clearly and helps drive us today. But in Acts 23, there is a brilliant passage that I love. Now, starting next week, we're going to go through the book of Acts. We start that next week, and we will finish quite a while after that. But um, we are a church that preaches through books of the Bible, um, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we start the book of Acts. I've been super excited. We've been preparing for this for a long time. But to give you just a tidbit of that looking ahead, in Acts 23, we have this crazy situation where Paul is in a courtroom. He always found himself in front of those of high power. But he's in a courtroom and before him is both his judge and his jury. Right? Now, by this point, most of his ministry is over. He's planted a lot of churches, he has set in many pastors, he's made many friends, made many enemies, seen Christianity grow, been heartbroken, been excited. He's already done his missionary trips. And here he is before this group. And as he walks in, I can't imagine it being much bigger than the group we have right here. Half of them were Pharisees, and half of them were Sadducees. Now, they are not too totally different because they're both Jewish groups. They're both kind of, uh, I guess, splinters or divisions off, mainline Judaism. Now, Sadducees were interesting because they didn't believe in an overarching plan. They would call it fate, and they would say, we don't believe in it. They didn't believe that God was always in control. They didn't believe in a lot of things. They didn't believe in immortality. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the traditions that the Pharisees held very close. Pharisees we happen to know about because we see a lot written in the New Testament about them, right? So we know that they were all for God being in control. They were all for there being the existence of angels and the existence of demons. And they were all for traditions. In fact, they were so much For traditions, that they said that's the only way you can please God is by not misbehaving and by behaving a certain way. And that is what bent God's ear towards you. So you have these two different groups, and that is where Paul finds himself. And in verse 6, it says this Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope. And the resurrection of the dead, that I am on trial. And when he said this, a d- dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Okay, we're going to pause right there. What is Paul doing? He's doing what it looks like he's doing, he's causing some turbulence. He's bringing static on, the, on purpose because he notices he's in a little bit of a kangaroo court. It's not going to get a fair trial at all. So if he knows if, if he can get them looking at each other more than looking at him, he could probably slip out the back door, which is what happened. This is what happened. These people, the only thing they did not like, the only thing that they hated more than Paul were each other. In fact, you're about to see what the Pharisees do, which is brilliant. It says, Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel did speak to him? Well, that's interesting because they just brought him in to try him. They were the ones that wanted to see this guy hang, and now they're sticking up for him. Why? They don't believe that he's innocent. They're trying to stick it to the other group. This is them making their stand. And when the dissension became violent... The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. There are some strong descriptive words in this passage. It started to devolve this situation. It went from dissension to clamor to sharp contention to violence to forceful violence. It just went middle school real fast is what happens. Maybe you've seen those YouTube videos of some legislative session in some small Eastern European country where they're trying to agree on some law and they can't get their arms around it, so they start punching each other and and arm-barring everyone and and throwing shoes and screaming and their shirts coming untucked and bloody noses. That's what's going on right here, and Paul knew it would happen. Paul knew that this was going to happen. They're not arguing over whether Jesus died. They're not arguing over whether God created the universe or not. They're not arguing over circumcision or diet or anything. They're arguing over whether dead things can become new life. They're arguing over whether something living can come out of something dead. And that argument still exists today. Today, we have a planet full of people that are sharply contesting each other, or in a great clamor, as the word says, over the exact same subject. And it's all regarding an empty tomb. All regarding an empty grave. My question is, where do you stand when it comes to dead things becoming new? Think about what I'm saying. Where do you stand when it comes to new life coming out of something that is deceased, expired. And I'm not just talking about the physical world. I'm also talking about spiritually dead becoming spiritually alive. And I probably even have to define what new life means. I mean, it's going to sound like I'm being super obvious, but hear me out. New life is not better death or improved death or polished death. It is something totally different from death. So when Jesus burst out of the jaws of death, when he came out of a man-made tomb and, and shed off the man-made wrappings with the man-made perfumes and, and looked where he had man-made scars on him, when he did that, he did not come out of the tomb as a corpse or a better corpse or an improved version of one who is dead. To be obvious, he came out as one who was very, very alive. And I think we forget this a lot of times. I think this is something that slips from our minds. He was really dead, folks. He wasn't fainting He wasn't faking it. He didn't have magic dust on him where he was dead, but not really. His lungs had no air. His blood had no heart. His brain had no activity. His skin went cold. He was dead. And God made him alive. With the power of his Holy Spirit raised him up from death. (laughs) I think we let this slip. When Jesus did this, he proved that there was an end to death. And death would no longer have dominion, not only over him, but death would no longer have dominion over the family to come. You see, Jesus was a first fruit, meaning the choicest in the initial part of a harvest. We are the rest of the fruit as God's people. If you are one of God's people, you will follow after Christ, and you too will be made new, as you already are made new to a certain degree. And we're going to talk about that in a second. Jesus proved this. Up to this point, I think most of us would check this box. Well, I agree, Luke. I agree, or I wouldn't be here. But let me submit this. I think the majority of us in here, me for almost a decade, our hearts still sharply contend with this truth. I think there's a clamor, as Luke describes in Acts, a clamor in our hearts over this fact that new life can come from dead things. I know it suddenly feels like I'm not preaching to most of you because you might actually believe this. You might actually uh, agree with everything. Jesus lived? Check. Jesus died? Check. Jesus rose? Check. But I want you to think about it for a minute and be as totally honest with yourself as possible. No one can see what you're thinking right now. You are free to be vulnerable with yourself. Okay? Do you really feel like a new creation? I mean, really. Do you really feel like a new creation? Or do you feel like an improved death? just the same old, maybe a little bit more knowledgeable, maybe you tolerate a little bit more, maybe you try harder than you used to, but not really alive, not really a new creation. It's, it might not be for you the old is gone and the new has come. It might feel like the old is still here. Maybe it's just a better old, and you've kind of been okay with that. Is that you? Do you feel maybe, even this morning, like a corpse dressed up? Like at a funeral. The dead walking, but trying really hard to look alive. It's exhausting, isn't it? It's exhausting. It's tiring to keep up that charade. I accepted Jesus into my heart when I was 13, whatever that means. That's a totally different sermon. (laughs) I don't actually believe that we accept Jesus into our heart just to give you the punchline. I think he invades our heart and grabs us when we're running as far and as fast away from him as possible. When we're trying to evade him and shake his grasp, I think he grabs us, ambushes us, and invades and permeates our being, rescuing us as we throw rocks at him as rebels and enemies away from the jaws of judgment. I think that is what it really looks like. But I prayed a sinner's prayer when I was 13. I went to a church camp in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. I saw a video that scared the pants off me about what it must look like in hell. And I remember sitting on a, on, a, on a bridge and looking at the water thinking, I will do anything not to go to hell after what I just saw. If it's half as bad as that video was, sign me up, right? 13. I did it again when I was 14. Twice. I did it a bunch more when I was 15. I got saved a million times when I was 16. And 17 and 18 and 19, it wasn't until I was 20 years old that something radical happened. With all the church services I'd been to, with all that I'd seen, it was only when I was 20 years old that God chiseled in and gave me eyes to see a good gospel that Paul was preaching and the faith to actually believe it for the first time. It was when I was at that age that I I was compelled to launch my life into what God had called me into. You couldn't have held me back. I raced to the altar. I didn't even wait for the service to finish. And all I had in hand was a pockmarked, disastrous, misspent youth. And giving it to God, he exchanges it with a perfect, brilliant, righteous, clean life. He did that for me. And I was never the same. Here's the thing. I was a new creation. I wasn't a better pagan. I wasn't an improved dead person. I was a new being. I was totally new. What was I? Here's the question. Because some of that might be a similar story for many of you. Many of you. What was I in those seven years between 13 and 20? Now, I won't say what it was for you. I know what it was for me. With over 350 church services that I showed up to and 200 Sunday school classes and seven Easter's, five church camps and way too many bad Christian concerts and any other little Christian thing I could get myself into in that seven year span, all I was was a walking corpse trying to look alive. That's frightening. Just trying to look alive. Exhausted confused, wondering when the new creation part was actually going to show up. And I think this is the norm. I think it's perhaps the majority of most people that check next to the box with the word Christian next to it. I think this is where they find themselves with a knowledge that something profound must have happened. The man upstairs, I think, pretty much did something. I'm sure it was kind of complicated and I hear it was a little gruesome, but it sounds nice to me and it gets me to heaven. And what do I do in return? I obey out of obligation. I got to pay my end up. God did something, now I got to show that I can do something. I think this is where it is for a lot of people. Our behavior changes not because we can't help but change because we are so fascinated and fixated on our king, but we change because we're paying up on an IOU. I don't think it takes very long for us when we're in this phase, and many of you are there right now, I don't think it takes very long for us to realize it's not working, and I'm confused and now a little bit scared because I thought I was supposed to be something new. I thought I was supposed to be alive, but I just find that I'm kind of a different kind of dead, an altered kind of dead. I don't feel like I did because I see things in the Bible and I read it and I go to stuff, but I'm not really changed. I don't really have a love and a fascination for Jesus. Maybe it didn't stick. Maybe when I prayed to become a Christian, maybe it didn't work. Maybe I should do it in my mind. Maybe I should do it out loud. Maybe I should do it with a youth pastor. Maybe I should do it with a real pastor. Maybe I should do it on Sunday morning. Maybe I should do it at a church camp on Sunday morning. And we try every possible combination to get it to stick, don't we? I hated living that life. This is why some of you have been frustrated So frustrated, wondering when it's going to stick. You're here. This is also why a lot of the patterned sin that you find yourself in, you can't seem to crawl out of it. In fact, you kind of like it. You prefer it. This is also why some passages never make sense. The old is gone, the new has come. Whatever that means. Seven years I couldn't figure that out. I'd never lived it. And this is why, friends, you might be doubling down on your behavior. Because maybe, just maybe, if you bend enough bars of steel for God, if you go to enough services for God, he'll finally look at you. He'll finally draw you close. He'll finally be interested in you and finally make you feel like a new creation, like you've always wanted to feel. This is why I think Easter's a burden for a lot of people. Because there's no celebration. R- new life hasn't happened to you. New life hasn't happened to to God that you know about. And if it is a truth, that hasn't permeated to you. So it's just a day of relatives that you're not real super excited about being around. It's a day of ham, tucked in shirts, trying to remember, are we doing Easter eggs this year or not? It's like, like bad or good? How do I tell the kids? It's just a weird, burdening, tiring day. Friends, you might be in this passage, this crazy one in the courtroom. That might be you. You might be a Sadducee. You might be a Pharisee. You might be a corpse walking, trying very hard to be alive. Sadducees. We have people that are just like the Sadducees with skeptical hearts. They were deists, right? So they believed in the man upstairs. They did. They had a functional belief that there was some some author that was kind of kicked everything off, but they were highly, highly skeptical. So sure, you might be like that, going through the motions with no hope pinned on the resurrection. It's not true for God, not that I know of, and it's definitely not true for me. So if celebrating Resurrection Day or Easter is something you're doing because your parents told you to do it, or your grandparents are going to ask you later on this afternoon and you don't want to disappoint them, or this is just what you do because this is just what you do in the South, friends, you might be a Sadducee and you might be a corpse walking around trying very hard to look alive when you yourself know it's not sticking. That might be you. A corpse. Kind of like that old car that you had in high school or college. We all had that car, the one that you knew any day this one's going to give up the ghost. It sounded emphysemic when we had started it up, you know. (laughs) 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 All the lights. you, You gave up a long time ago trying to get those dashboard lights to turn off. You're just riding it out until it quits. But it didn't stop you from going to AutoZone, did it? And getting the plastic wheel covers and the spoiler and the lead press-on tint kit that you could do in your garage, why? Because we don't want it to look like it's dying. We want it to look like it's alive. So we take the same thing and we alter it. It's not really changed. It's just an altered same. Trying to be changed. The gospel, though, it showcases a change. The gospel, it showcases a tomb with no corpse in it, a grave with no resident. The gospel. The gospel, the good news of what God has done for mankind through the person, work, and passion of Jesus Christ. One where God came and lived among us in the grit and in the grime, laughing with us, crying with us, working with us, walking with us, relaxing with us, living perfect. Watching as the sins of broken creation beset so many people, and even though he's tempted to walk in the same way, he's able to not do it. Feeling your pain, but not answering with sin. Living a perfect life as we, with our hands, heave him up on a cross. The gospel, where he receives justice, where he receives a punishment pointed for you. Not punished for being Jesus, but punished for being us as he's up there receiving this judgment that will not fall on those of his family, and then he becomes dead, truly dead, in a tomb. God's spirit comes and raises him up from the dead. He emerges as a victorious, radiant king, living among his closest disciples, teaching about the kingdom, brought up to the right hand of God where he stands and intercedes for us, waiting for the day where he can come and collect his own family, He will resurrect us again, again by the power of his spirit, both the quick and the dead, either to be judged or to feast with him. This is the gospel. And it showcases. The pinnacle of the story is an empty tomb. It's proof that it took. Romans 8.11 has a fascinating passage in it. This is where God resurrecting in the tomb is pertinent for us. Romans 8.11, if the spirit of him, and stay in, in Romans 6, by the way, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What does this mean? It means that we're being changed day by day, slowly, sometimes slow, sometimes fast, but we're being changed day by day to look a lot more like Jesus. Now, before one becomes a Christian, before they become a new creation, they're unable to change. Some of you in here are doubting that statement right here because you are not a new creation. You are a skeptical person, and you don't even know about this Jesus thing, but you feel like you can change. But it's not real change, friend. I mean, you could do little things like add kale to your diet. Just quit smoking, or at least change what you're smoking. You, you could quit cussing. You could start showing up to things. I mean, I, sh- I did for 350 weeks I showed up to things. But that's not real change. That's not overseeing and coming through lust or addictions or anger or unforgiveness or sadness or depression or envy, you you had no power to wrangle with that. Those are blocks that God himself moves, even in our own lives. We just walk it out as he does it for us. Being born again does does not mean being a better dead person. It means being a totally different person. Pharisees are a little bit different. I think Pharisees is where the majority of the church will find themselves. This was me that whole time. Modifying behavior, practicing better behavior, r- r- managing sin, not so much putting it down, but managing it. And not knowing the fact that we are free from sin and we are free from performance. I didn't understand that I was free from performance. And I didn't even understand that I was free from sin. And that's the only thing I'm going to show today. I don't really have time to go into the performance. And I feel like we do that every single week. But a lot of us feel trapped and helpless. This is where I was for many years. Some of you are here now. Like, I can't help but to sin. I'm almost a victim. I'm cast into it and I have no power to, 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 to go around it, to stop it. I'm trapped. I'm locked into sin. Friend, if you feel that way, You might be a Pharisee, you might be a Sadducee, but you are for sure a corpse. There is no spirit in you I would contain if you feel like you were restrained from any kind of change. I know that this is heavy. I know this is heavy. And what I would say and what I'm about to say is going to be seen as most heavy. I feel like this is where most of the church culture is. More than 50%. Jonathan Edwards, who is a preacher in the 1700s, a brilliant philosopher and an even better preacher. He would always preach to his church as if they were all going to hell. Sinners in the hand of an angry God. That's the one who gave this sermon. And when someone came up to him and said, why is it that you always preach as if everyone in the building is totally lost? He says, because most of them are. (laughs) Most of them are. He loved them so much, he was going to deliver the good news every single week. Okay, let me attempt to get just a little bit heavier with you. Some of you in this room, some of you in this room are not Christians, even though your parents told you you were. You're not Christians, even though your youth pastor told you that you were. Even though you were baptized in a river at that church camp at that time at that place. Even if you own a John Piper book, And you've been coming to Legacy since the living room stage. You might not be. In fact, this is why some of us struggle. And we enjoy the sin that we're in. We enjoy practicing it. And we feel like we're enslaved to it. This might be you, friends. Don't miss this passage and where you are located in it. Let's look at Romans 6. This is the passage that I think is going to help us most as we drive out of this. We're almost done. Romans 6.4, this is Paul speaking to a brilliant church, brilliantly, he says, we, are, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is a great baptism passage, by the way. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What do we get from this? Christians are not better corpses. We're something totally different. We're new creations. Why did I choose this day to drop anchor on that topic? Because I could have gone a lot of different ways today. I think probably the number one most asked question in the churched world, I'm not saying Christian as much as churched, so hear that. I think the number one question we ask is, am I saved? Am I really saved? Come on, you've asked it. You've asked it a thousand times, haven't you? I did, I grew up asking it. Am I really saved? Listen, I think we do this because we keep going back to the same old ways. And we, we see that we're not supposed to, right? I think for some of you that are asking this question repeatedly, am I saved? Am I really saved? I think it's a good question for you to ask yourself. And in fact, I would even contend for a lot of you, it's the Holy Spirit showing you what the gospel is meant to produce and then showing you what your life is producing in the disparity between the two so that your heart is provoked, not condemned, but convicted to change, to you've been believing about God, to see what you've not been in love with, and then to see what lies you have been believing and what you are in love with, and to see what what have I been treating as a God in my life. I think that is a possibility, but I think a lot of people that are asking that question, am I saved, is because you see no marks of growth, you see no marks of wanting to overcome sin. In fact, you enjoy it and you practice it as much as possible. Friend, you might be a corpse walking around. You might be misbehaving because you're totally enslaved to it. It is the deepest love I have for me to tell you that today. It's, it's the most loving thing I could possibly do. A frightening passage for me growing up is 1 John 3. And uh, it's going to be on the screen. John says, little children, let no one deceive you. Why does he say that? Because this is an easy place to get off track. Easy place to believe something you ought not be believing. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We know this. Verse 9. No one, no one, no one, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. What does this mean? This petrified me for many years. Practicing something is just to do something in a repetitive fashion so that you can become more economical and more proficient at it. Your accuracy gets better. Your precision gets better. It's practice. And a lot of us practice sins. It's a sign of the Holy Spirit not doing the work in you. That's, that's what that is. When we practice something over and over in order to get better at it. Listen, if you love what God hates, and Easter is just a day for you, I would contend that you're a corpse. I would contend that you're a corpse acting very well, acting as much as you can to be alive. What I love about Easter, or the Resurrection Day, however you want to say it, it drives humanity into this courtroom where Paul's at. We're forced to make a decision on what we believe about what God has done for us and what is going on inside of us. We're forced to make that decision, right? Right? So the only application I have for you today is that being born a God, or being born again into new life, it's not changing your behavior, it's changing your God. It's not looking at what do I need to do now. It's looking at what God has done. It's not looking at where do I need to go now. It's looking at what God did and where He went for us. It's not being fixated on your own patterns and being fixated on what you need to do with your own life. It's being fascinated with what God has done because you could never do anything with your life. That's the beauty of the gospel. The danger in your average church service. The danger in a service or a day like this is people filing out and going to their cars, dragging the pot roast out of the crock pot, thinking about the sermon and thinking about what they need to do to change their life. Rolling up their sleeves and saying, I need to get to work. This is what I hit with the hammer. This is what I turn with the wrench. I've got work to do to get God to like me. That's our gaze coming to ourself. But that never produces change. It just modifies behavior. It won't change you. The thing that you've been doing, it won't change you. The only thing that changes us now is an expulsive affection. It's an affection where we walk out and our eyes are not fixed on what we need to do, but our eyes are fixed on what God has done for us, showcased by an empty tomb. And as we fall in love and are fascinated with God's patience with us and his passion for us, then something exudes from all of our pores. And we know we must change. I want to change. I desire to change and I can't help but change. Well, Why? Why do you not want to be addicted to the same thing? Because I love God too much. I'm so in love with what God has done for me. I don't need that thing to be envious over. I don't need that thing to meet my need. I don't need that person to see me a certain way. I don't need the things I used to need because I'm changed. We love God, He changes us. Super simple. Super simple. So today it represents a death of death for us and the beginning of the best beginnings. And God's grace to us is so good, is it not? It's so good. He did not have to come. He came to earth, died, and by his spirit he was raised again and then came to us. The same spirit that raised God, the same spirit. Think about that. The same spirit that was with Christ in the tomb as he is resurrected is inside of his family, the rest of the first fruit. It's in us. It's beautiful. And there will be a day when our physical bodies are raised up Whether you're cremated or in the ground or under the sea, we will all be quickened. So, let's celebrate this day. Not as just Easter celebrators, but an Easter people. Let's celebrate this day. I'm all for it. I'm not against celebrating Easter. But let me just say, let's celebrate it tomorrow and next month. If Easter is not relevant to you in November or in June... You might be in this passage, you might be a Pharisee, you might be a Sadducee, just doing it on the day you're supposed to do it, because that's the day you're supposed to do it. So go ahead and stand with me, because what I'm going to do here, Wes, you can go ahead and come on up, buddy. I want to read something to you, and it's going to be on the screen so you can read along. Studies show that people prefer that. This is an excerpt from a sermon, as if you didn't just hear one, right? Right? This is an excerpt from a sermon in 167 A.D. from Melito from Sardis. The best that archaeologists know of and the best that historians know of, this is the very first Easter service ever preached, okay? At least that we have record of. I thought it was fitting. This is what he says to us. He says, he rose up from the dead, and he cried aloud with this voice, who is he who contends with me? Who is he? Let him stand in opposition to me. I set the condemned man free. I gave the dead man life. I raised up the one who had been entombed. Who is my opponent? I, he says, am the Christ. I am the one who destroyed death and triumphed over the enemy and trampled Hades underfoot and bound the strong one and carried off man to the heights of heaven. I, he says, am the Christ. Therefore come, all families of men. You have been befouled by sins. And receive forgiveness for your sins. I love this part. I am your forgiveness. I am the Passover of your salvation. I am the lamb which was sacrificed for you. I am your ransom. I am your light. I am your savior. I am your resurrection. I am your king. I am leading you up to the heights of heaven. I will show you the eternal father. I will raise you up by my right hand. This is is the Alpha and the Omega. This is the beginning and the end. An indescribable beginning and an incomprehensible end. This is the Christ. This is the King. This is Jesus. This is the General. This is the Lord. This is the one who rose up from the dead. This is the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, to whom be the glory and power forever. Amen. I agree. 2,000 years later, we're still agreeing with that because God is good. God is good. Listen, we're going to pray and then Wes is going to come up here and explain what's going to happen next. But before he comes up, I want you to know that, listen, if you are one of those Sadducees or the Pharisees that we find in the passage, and you just don't know where you're at, it's confusing up here. You've had moments where you have felt like God has changed you, but for the most part, you're pretty sure He has not. And you just want to talk to somebody just to get, just to get the junk out, to, to help turn the static and the white noise to something that is understandable. If you just need help, maybe you have a friend that you're praying for. If you just need someone to talk to, this is a good time to do it. Don't, don't lose these moments, okay? Don't lose these moments. I'll be here. I'll be in the back over there. You can come and talk to me. We have other leaders. We have, uh, raise up if you're, there's Chase over there. Chase, will you raise your hand, buddy? He's an elder with us. He'd love to talk to you. Where is, is Rebecca in here? No? There she is. Thank you. Yeah, I know you're not Rebecca, but thanks for the clarification. So if Rebecca, if you need someone to talk to, please talk to somebody. All right? Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, I thank you that even for us who love you and are passionate for you, let it be a good reminder to us that you have shut the jaws of death. No longer does it have dominion over you and death has lost its sting over us. Death has lost its sting. I can live free. The worst thing that could happen to me does not take that away. Lord, nurture our hearts' affections for you as we worship, as we see the lyrics, as we pray, as we worship, as we take communion, as we give, as we do all the things that we do to say, I am worshiping. Nurture our hearts' Turn the soil of our hearts to where we are so fixed and fascinated with you that sin has simply lost its taste. And, Father, as we find ourselves in the courtroom where people are mad and they're clamorous in their hearts, whether you have done what you said you were going to do or not, Lord, I pray that you would break into hearts today. Hearts in here and hearts in this city even beyond us, 800 other pulpits, Lord, that you would be breaking into and chiseling into cold, dead hearts. And as you say in Ezekiel, you bring a new heart of flesh to replace that heart of stone that we love to obey, that we love to walk in your commandments, not because we have to pay you off, but because we love you. God, thank you for being our king and our general. Thank you for breaking out of that grave. Thank you for moving out of that tomb and creating a people creating a people around you, a family. But we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.